Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're talking the series finale of A Vulture Fave, HBO's The Leftovers. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar sites Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And we are joined this week by New York Magazine writer Boris Kochka. Hi. Hi, Boris. Uh, Boris spent months embedded with Damon Lindelof and, and the, the Leftovers crew to tell the story of how the finale came together. So he'll be bringing some unique insight to this episode. And we're also joined by variety critic and fellow Leftovers superfan, Sonia Saraya. Hi. Hi, Sonia. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, Sonia. Hi, Matt. It's our second time this weekend. It is. <laughs> Sonia was on uh, critics panel at um, Split Screens Festival at IFC, which I'm programming. So we talked We talked about the craft. It was fun. Nice. Yeah. Well, I've been honing all my barbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk some more about craft here <laughs> today, guys. I thought we could just start by, you know, surveying the room and just getting a sense of what everybody thought of this finale. Like thumbs up, thumbs down kind of a, a thing. <laughs> Did you like the way it ended? Oh, I mean, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I think that The Leftovers hasn't always been... It, it, this, the first season was a little difficult for me, you know, and I think I, I haven't always seen eye to eye with the show. And then it felt like the third season, everything it did, I was on board with. And then the finale just, like, put a button on everything that I felt needed closure and left un, unaddressed everything that I was fine with leaving unaddressed. Right. I maybe have a quibble here or there, but... Overall, like that last shot, I was I was like wrecked. I was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> that was that was perfect. So yeah, yeah. That How was about great. you, Matt? I I loved it too. I loved it too. And the thing I loved the most about it was, well, there were two things. One was that it did what I want every episode of a show that I love, not just the finale to do, which is it gave me something different from what I expected, but equally or more mm-hmm. satisfying. Mm-hmm. And the other thing it did was it kind of walked the line between giving people who needed an explanation an explanation or feeling as if they'd been given an explanation and, as Sonia was saying, letting the mystery be. Right. Mm. You know, you could kind of go either way, I think, depending on what you want the show to be, like yeah. what you need the show to be. And in that sense, I was talking to Damon Lindelof at a uh, screening of the finale at the Metrograph in New York City, and I said, you know what you guys have done here is you've taken the last four minutes of The Sopranos and you've turned it into a show. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. and I think back on the all three seasons, I feel like have an aspect of that. Boris. Well, it's hard for me to have yeah. perspective on it because I read the script in... September and saw, you know, an almost final version of the finale in late December. So, yeah. And, <laughs> well, but the interesting thing is that I know how it was written and I know how it was performed and how that sort of changed the ambiguity. So that's what I was watching for was how how am I as the audience supposed to receive this ambiguity? And I think they got it sort of pitch perfect. And it really depends on who you are and what you want out of the show as to how you read it. But as a writer, always looking at shows maybe a little bit too much for their scripts and Mm -hmm. for the intentions of the writers, I think it was just the sort of the perfect execution of the idea of like what I thought to be the theme of the final Mm. season, which was that we need to tell ourselves a story about what happens to the people we lose and what happens to us at the end of our lives. 
that makes it easier for us to be alive and to love other people. And that's that's what I thought it answered at the yeah, end. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was talking to Boris about this before the show, but I the first time my I think my test for how much a leftovers episode affects me is how much I cry, <laughs> which is often the case for a lot of people, I think. And the first time I watched it, I didn't really feel super moved. And I think I was watching it kind of in work mode and also like kind of just taking in everything. And it wasn't what I expected, like you said, Matt. And then the second time I watched it, mm. I just like, yeah. I, I was way more emotional. So yeah, I mean, it, personally, I would recommend watching it a second time just because I felt like I was able to appreciate all the nuances more than the first time where it kind of takes you, you know, you're kind of catching up to the episode as it's happening and mm -hmm. kind of figuring out what's going on, which I, which I loved about it. But um, mm -hmm. I, I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about, oh, were you going to say something? So, I, yeah. I was because I, I was just thinking that the thing that, I, that I, my quibble was that I thought Lori was dead. And mm -hmm. so when that start, when that plot line started, uh, well, well, when Nora called her, I was like, are we in heaven? Like, I, I mean, and I talked to Damon Lindelof after the episode and I was like, I thought we were in heaven. And he was like, that was on purpose. I wanted you to feel as disoriented as right, Nora feels. Right. But but I agree with you that the the mental I was I was trying to keep up with where the, sh the episode was. And so I I, I do want to see it again. Yeah. for that reason. Yeah. And I thought, you know, hmm. maybe we could start with, you know, Boris, maybe you could tell us actually Mm -hmm. what the thinking was here on a macro level, making this finale such a quiet one, considering the finales of seasons one and two were just so action-packed. Yeah, yeah, well, it bears remembering that uh, the end of season two uh, was about a bomb that didn't go off, mm. um, that didn't exist, in fact, and that this season is about hellfire and damnation that never comes, except in possibly someone's hallucination or the afterlife. And Damon called it Chekhov's apocalypse to me. And I think that became hmm. like really important early on as they were trying to figure out. And as Damon was trying to figure out something which to him is pretty high stakes, which is like, how do you end the show? What is that final episode about? And I think by having a sort of, you know, other world apocalypse at the end of seven and then, you know, having, I think, Senior saying now what, which I only sort of caught in, when I saw episode seven a second time. It just sets you up for like, okay, it didn't happen. The world didn't end. How do we, like, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And I think that was a major theme of like, of the show, which is, okay, actually, like, we can't sort of manufacture ourselves into Armageddon, you know, barring a, an errant presidency here and there. But, you know, we can try and figure out what to do with the rest of our lives. And I, I think that, so that became like what episode eight was going to be about. And and the the Kevin Nora love story, whatever you think of how central it is, I think uh, the writers came to believe that it was really the central point of the story, because of who Nora is, who is somebody who lost everybody, and sort of to a lesser extent who Kevin is. And we can talk about this because Kevin uh, sort of baffles me a little bit because he's such a sort of reactive character. My editor had a sort of feminist take on it, which is that he's trying to figure out how to live with like strong women basically. And that's his problem. And that's what he's trying to deal with in episode seven. I'm getting a little off topic here. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I do, I do want to talk about Kevin, um, even though this, episode, we need to talk about, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this episode is about, is the book of Nora, but 
you you're ultimately left with more questions about Kevin, maybe. Well, why don't we start from the beginning of the episode, which or where the plot of the episode goes into motion, which is Kevin showing up and, you know, acting like the last time that they talked was back at the the dance in Mapleton. And because the show has so many supernatural elements, obviously, like your mind goes to like, what is going on mm-hmm. here? Like, is there something going on here that is... Has he suffered memory loss? Is something that crossed my mind? You know, the actual answer is the most normal and romantic one. You know, he he's trying to start over. He's got a pretty funny way of trying to start over. I mean, yeah. that was that was the only part of the finale that didn't quite sit right with mm, me. Was him really? Telling, yeah, him telling that story and it, and it was like as a way to confuse and disorient the audience. I thought it was aces, but it presented a whole bunch of. It sounds strange to use the phrase plausibility problems in a story like The Leftovers, but but Kevin, it just seemed like he tells this story which makes us think that we're in an alternate universe and makes her think that she's lost her mind. Mm. And we don't know what's true and what's not true. And then it's ultimately his explanation as well. That was what I felt like I needed to tell you in order to get back into your life, which is like a rom-com sort of explanation right. for a lie. And it almost reminded me of... In uh, the end of a, uh, an affair to remember when Deborah uh-huh. Kerr just doesn't meet Cary Grant at the Empire State Building and later she explained, you know, I was in a car accident and I thought that if you <laughs> saw that I couldn't walk anymore, you wouldn't want to be with me. It's like, why would she think that? <laughs> well, you know, know, like it's like, well, because it's a 1959 Hollywood right, film. That's right. why. But nevertheless, it's like. Can I tell you I, what the writers were thinking? They, were they, they wanted thinking? it to be a rom-com, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. It was a love story in reverse. This is what Patrick Somerville is one of the like one of the more senior writers. Kevin and Nora as we see them in the in the first episode, they're very ha- they're happy on the on the very surface of the surface. And actually they don't know each other at all. They have secrets from each other. So it's a uh, sort of reverse courtship. They never really went on those first dates. So to them, that function of Kevin coming in, whether he's conscious about it or not, is the opportunity for them to court, to have a conversation, to have a dance, to get to know each other all over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with you. It's a little bit strained, especially, I think, when he keeps up the ruse while they're dancing. It's mm-hmm. like, you won, just drop it, you know, mm-hmm, and then he mm-hmm. still yeah. can't, yeah. you know. But, but Kevin does have a historic inability to know when his moment is. Yes. <laughs> I mean, That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I kind of loved it. I... Just because it it plays on the show's supernatural elements, and it made sense to me that he would like where what do you start with you know coming into after ten years, especially with the way they basically had this blowout fight the last time they saw each other, and you you spend the whole season with them kind of not really getting. Like, they're kind of scratching the surface with each other. They're never really getting down to who the other person is. So, I don't know. It felt like the only thing to do is to start over in this way. Mm -hmm. Which, like, maybe was a little... Tonally, it didn't quite fit what the show usually does. But, like, in a symbolic way, it made sense to me that that Mm -hmm. would be what his choice was. The episode feels a little outside of the Leftovers universe. And there's very little score in it. Mm-hmm. I think that's intentional. It's very much like the International Assassin episodes where it has its own language. But I love the wedding. I mean, partly it's because I was on set, but it was, yeah. I just thought it was gorgeous. I thought it was you know? beautiful, yeah. And I, you know, maybe that's a little mushy, a little mushy for the, you know, typical leftovers. Well, something, die hard, but. something that, that struck me is that A, 
you know, classical comedy will end with a wedding <laughs> or, or like a rom-com will end with them getting together. Right. And I sort of felt like the fact that this was this like tragic semi-alternate reality lost like Kevin's not totally being honest about who he is mm. that that was like as close to the happy ending as the leftovers could get like this was the the leftovers comedic ending but to me that was kind of like I was watching the wedding and I was like this is funny like <laughs> this is funny to me just because it is so warped by reality it's so warped right. by like loss and grief and yet at the same time i think that that was something that the writers really wanted that they they really wanted to deliver their version of a happy ending while keeping in mind that they're in this universe that is not about you know doesn't really deliver that mm. yeah speaking of the purgatory uh-huh if you if you watch her getting into the bathtub i was in the editing room and damon made the editor stop and look for an alt where she had the tattoo visible so that you could know that she's not in purgatory. So for all of the Reddit people who are going to still mm. insist that she's in purgatory. people will still insist that yeah. she's in purgatory. She's not. Uh, although she's I in don't purgatory, call. meaning everything that happens after she goes into the, right. the bathosphere or whatever it is, that's the alternate world. Yeah, and that Kevin's there because he's dead too, and maybe yeah, and Lori's dead. And... I'm pretty sure that's not what it was. I mean, yeah. especially if there's the writers are saying that's definitely not what it was. Well, that, yeah, that but point... not, that doesn't make any difference as as we've been shown for ten straight years with David Chase repeatedly saying, <laughs> "I didn't. I'm not saying Tony got killed at the right, coffee shop." And they're right. like, "He said Tony got killed at the coffee shop." <laughs> Right. No, I mean, I guess diner. Sorry, <laughs> Wait, diner. But I miss it. What is the purgatory theory here? Mm. It, Duke, I'm sorry. It's not really one, but it's something that I think that, as we were saying, like Damon sort of wants to play with a little bit. Like you see her in this other place, and I mean, it's in the script. It is another time, another place, and you see right. that fast forward from the first episode, mm -hmm. and she just went through this machine. So where is she in this blue sky? And, right. You know, and why is she? And Kevin, sort of, I guess he came back, but he might not have, and we thought Laurie was dead, and so for like the first 20 minutes you're like everything feels a little bit different and right the fact that kevin doesn't know where they whether it's purgatory or some alternate reality right is it a world where kevin and nora never right. Right. that's sort right. of what they lead yeah. us to right. believe right right and there's also another thing which is you know i'll just take you briefly down some of the different branching neural pathways that i traveled while watching this finale my first thought was, is she dead? Is this heaven? Is this purgatory? Is this some alternate reality similar to one that Kevin keeps visiting when he, you know, drowns or asphyxiates himself? That was number one. Number two was when this Kevin person appears, is this really Kevin? Mm -hmm. Or is this uh, an alternate Kevin similar to one of the two Kevins that we saw in episode seven of season three? Yeah. And in fact, there have been multiple iterations of different characters that we've met, you know, along the way on this show. And... One of the most uh, notable examples is the the God character that we meet in episode five as appeared in two other episodes prior to that. And he's kind of the only thing that sort of throws a wrench into this idea that we can objectively annotate and solve the mysteries of the leftovers. Like he's the sort of the wild subatomic particle that's messing everything up. Like any theory that you have, that guy messes it up. <laughs> and I like that. I like that. But then the bigger question for me was the story that Nora told to Kevin about what happened to her when she went under. Was she telling the truth mm -hmm. or was she lying? And it never occurred to me that she wasn't telling the truth. And I said you know, on this panel that I moderated, 
so many people in the audience, I would say about a third of the audience thought she was lying. And she does have a history of that. But the only reason, honest to God, that I took her word for it is Carrie Coon is a great actress. And, I'm, and I was like, oh, of course, that's what happened. Right. That's the only reason. Because you were right, Kevin. What you said in the hotel the last time we saw each other. I needed to be with my kids. I didn't mean that. You meant it, and you were right, Kevin. There were always going to be bulletproof vests, hugs from holy men, tattoos to cover up. But those were just ways to deal with what I lost. I needed a way to get them back. I knew there was a chance it would kill me. But I made my peace with that. And I said goodbye to my brother. And I climbed right in. And then you changed your mind? No. I didn't change my mind. This very much goes to the thrust of my story, which is Damon's need to both control the ambiguities, to limit the ambiguities, and to control this central ambiguity. Because essentially he started out with the idea that 50% of the audience would believe she went through and 50% would not. And he saw in the course of showing it to more and more people that that was not the case. The Australian crew completely believed her. Hmm. Because I think because of Carrie's performance, Damon was sitting there watching Carrie do it. And he turned to Tom Parada and he said, I think I believe her. <laughs> and I think you know yeah. what it means when he says that. I think, you know, the consensus of the room is off the record. But I think if you do a close reading of what Damon thinks, I think the writerly intention is at the very least for there to be a 50-50 ambiguity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not a certainty that she went through. I mean, mm -hmm. I, f I felt like watching it, like, if you're a fan of The Leftovers and you've already accepted this premise that 2% of the population has disappeared, and if you're one who's watching it, kind of accepting a lot of strange things that happen, it felt like I immediately wanted to accept it and that this was a very elegant answer that made sense to me, but that the more I thought about it, the more I was thinking of reasons that this doesn't make sense because why wouldn't everyone just be going back and forth? You know, mm. like why wouldn't this be like a huge deal in this world? Ah, but this brings me to this kind of grand unifying theory of the other world on the leftovers, uh -huh. which is that it's like as on the twilight zone where, you know, they constantly Rod Serling kept coming back to this story of weird stuff is happening to this character. Weird stuff is happening. Weird stuff is happening. What does it mean? They're in hell. <laughs> or they're in heaven. That was usually the conclusion. Yeah. And the version of hell or heaven depended on who the character was and what their issues were. And the reason I bring that up is the afterlife, the other world or whatever it is that we see when Kevin goes under, what kind of a world is this? It's a kind of a world that a macho, white, heterosexual cop would think of as the afterworld. It's a world of, you know, he's James Bond. Mm -hmm. He's an assassin. He's a commando. He gets to wear a tuxedo like, like you know, Bond and Casino Royale. And it's a world where you, like, you literally, 
you know, whip your dick out to prove you have access to uh, uh, to a certain room in, you know, the Defense Department. Like, I, I love that. I thought that was great. I mean, that was one of the best digs at the kind of military-industrial complex mentality since Slim Pickens rode a missile down to the earth at the end of Dr. Strangelove. And, like, that, it's a very Dr. Strangelove kind of joke. It's like, you know, identification, please, and he unzipped mm-hmm, his pants. Mm-hmm. It's great. And that's Kevin. Like, I don't believe that... Uh, Anybody else on the show, I think everybody gets their own version of the of the other world, if that is an other world. But I think and this and I almost hesitate to say this because it sounds so Mm. such a prosaic or even medical explanation. But there have been studies suggesting that when people die, when they have a near death experience and they come back, they report seeing a tunnel of white light and they feel a great peace settling over them. And there's a theory that this is not heaven or you know, an alternate universe or whatever happening. It's what's happening is your brain is dying and there's an evolutionary defense mechanism that is injecting chemicals in your brain to basically make you feel fine about the fact that you're about to cease to exist, right? And I think something like that might be happening when people go under in some way. Like Kevin goes, un- people go under as into the underworld. Mm-hmm. And Kevin goes under literally, you know, he asphyxiates himself and sometimes he literally drowns himself under the water. Mm-hmm. She goes under the water and that's how she has her experience. And what kind of experience does she have? Her experience as she describes it, like Kevin is in basically a Michael Bay film, <laughs> right? Or a James Bond movie. And what is she in? It's like a freaking Tarkovsky film. You know, it's a world of like, she's not like, you know, measuring her vagina to get access to the Pentagon. She's wandering around this desolate, you know, it's like a Beckett play or something. It feels very Jane Campion to me. It feels very Jane Campion. It's very Jane Campion or it's like Ingmar Bergman's Persona or something. Like that big monologue reminded me of the uh, the famous scene in Persona where a woman narrates a long story of a sexual encounter and you don't see it. You just mm-hmm. you you build the story in your head based on her voice. So anyway, what I'm saying is I think that, you know, I believe, yeah, I think he succeeded in, in planning that idea that we don't really know if there's another world or not. But if there is another world, I think everybody has their own alternative timeline or their own alternative dimension that they go to. But the more simple explanation is you go under, you're having you're having a dream. It's like occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or the end of Brazil. And what you see depends on who you are and what you fantasize about, mm-hmm. basically. But what I love about that is that regardless of whether or not it's in her unconscious or if it's her going to another plane of existence or if it really happened, that the sense of closure, closure that she gets, the peace that she gets is still real. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that was what was mm-hmm. really... That was what was really moving about the story, not so much that that was what happened at the departure, but that she could, I mean, you know, the fact that the scapegoat thing happens before that and she takes on the sins, right? She takes on the sins of humanity, more or less, in this, like, incredibly beautiful moment. The scapegoat, yeah. (laughs) And, like, it's, Mm. I mean, to me, it really indicated this feeling that I, that I, like I personally identified with Nora, and I think probably everyone does a little bit, which is that you know she really held herself outside of the of the world that other people were going through and 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 moving on. She she could she had to hold herself back. You know she had to take on this burden of humanity or something like that. But then as she's telling the story to Kevin, she's sort of able to say like 
I didn't belong there. They were happy. Like, they were the lucky ones. Like, just that fact that she could realize that even though she was burdened, it was to give other people peace. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, just that. It does. And yeah. I also, another thing I like about that, her story that she tells where it's like, I, I don't know, I'm, I might have missed the exact numbers, but in my mind, it's like, we lost 2% of the population on this side, but over there, they lost 98. Yeah. And there's not enough people left to fly planes. And and everything, it's like we're all, it's like suddenly it's like medieval England and you got to travel for days to see another human soul. Yeah. And so that, to me, that I love that because that plays into this idea of how people on the show are constantly measuring each other's trauma against each other, which is really not a healthy thing to do in this world, <laughs> let alone the world right. of the leftovers. That's what Lori's episode is, right? Yeah. She's going through from person to person and each of them is telling her... Can you believe how crazy I am? Yeah. Can you believe what it, what insane things I believe and I'm about to do? And she's like, yeah, I mean, as long as you're not psychotic, <laughs> your bag, just go ahead and drown. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Boris, mm-hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about how this uh, final scene was originally conceptualized? Because I, I know in your piece, you had they, they had it as Nora makes tea. Mm-hmm. And they originally had wanted Lily yeah. to be the person that she was talking to. Is well, that correct? Well, it started way back when Peter Berg was filming the pilot. And Damon said on set, so if you all recall, I saw that laundromat this past weekend because I went to Hastings. But there's a laundromat mm-hmm. where the mother loses her baby. That's mm-hmm. And she screams, Sam, 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 and we're in the departure. In the first scene of the Yeah, the, in the first scene show. of the whole show. When they were filming it, Damon said, can we try something? Can we have the baby stay and the mother go and film that? And Peter Berger was the director. Was, why? Why would you do that? It might be a good way to end the show. They didn't have time to film it. But the seed was already there that Damon had this idea that there was another world where the actually 98% of the population disappeared, which makes like a complete internal sense. But that was sort of tabled until the final season. And Damon comes in the room and he's like, maybe this is the time to do it. I think this is Nora's story. He had just watched The Fly late at night and got the idea for this device that could zap her. Interesting. And, um, you know, huh. And he, it was, they, they called it the the Brundlefly vaporizer on the whiteboard. That they, <laughs> that they wrote their ideas. That's great. Uh, check out my piece sometime. Matt. And they, so he wanted to show it. And Tom Parada was like, no way. We can't do it. I promise we would never answer this question. And this is the dynamic that they've had the whole time. And I think it's like, it's very important to the show. It's just as important as having Mimi Leader there, who's the director who sort of opened it up visually. Damon is brilliant, but the sort of push-pull between those two people is very important. And so uh, one of the writers, Patrick Somerville, brokered a compromise, and he said, what if she just tells the story? And Damon Lindelof says, well, the, how do we know if it's true or not? And as he's saying it, he's like, okay, that's the, that's it. So she sits down and she makes tea and she tells the story. And originally she was going to tell the story maybe to a grown-up Lily because they already had the idea that maybe Nora would give up Lily, partly because you just can't take a toddler to Australia. So yeah. like, so every problem was called a lily in the writer's room. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but as they, as they sort of started developing this idea that this is the story of how Kevin and Nora are, you know, the, a great way to end it would be to have them start over and recast their mm-hmm. own stories to each other. And she has to tell it to him. And yeah. what was, so when she first started telling the story, because they 
as she starts, they cut away to visuals of her in the machine. And so I naturally expected, as I think a lot of people did, that they would continue with visuals of Mm -hmm. her in this other place. Can you talk about, you know, why they decided not to do that? Because they wanted to preserve that 50-50 balance. Um, You know, one of the researchers on the um, second season had to call up the Cornell Ornithology Lab and make sure that a bird could survive for three days in a box underground. And they said, well, please don't do that. (laughs) Um, But the point is that there was always, (laughs) whatever you see on screen, there there is embedded in it some sort of idea that it could have really happened. And I think that flashback might have violated it. I did like that, you know, the visual element, as even though like my first instinct was to want it, I like... I, I liked the simplicity of, of not showing it. And it reminded me, you know, of Lost and how they do show you everyone in this heaven together. Or And it felt like that was the cheesiest thing that they could have yeah. done on yeah. Lost was to show you everyone <laughs> in this other place. And here they kind of eliminated the possibility. Of- yeah. I mean, well, it also, it also makes it more by denying us any sort of objective correlative for what she's describing like when you show something in a movie it's like saying yes this happened and then this and if you don't then you have some doubt and you're allowed to have you're allowed to interpret it and what was so risky about this is you know other people have mentioned this that the first rule of like storytelling is show don't tell Mm -hmm. and this broke that rule by just telling but it was Mm. kind of the perfect instance of it Mm -hmm. because of but there are so many ideas that if you look at what they considered early on you know, all of this stuff about Nora has her own shaman space. Kevin chases after her and goes through the LADR himself. You know, they find a town where, no, you know, where everybody disappeared. And it's like an atomic waste site. Like all these little ideas that are there. If you look hard enough, you can find them. But I think it's it's like this space where they, you know, there are all these, I don't know, kind of like traces of all of that stuff is it's in there, but they couldn't let it sort of rise to actual, you know, supernatural reality. All of these ideas about the afterlife and and the other place, and they, they were all explored. And then they decided, no, we're going to do right. the finale in a different way. They they explored the yeah. possibility of everyone kind of being in the other place. Of there or, being an yeah. end of the world, of there being a flood, of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, to me, the the way that Nora's the way that the show ends and the way that Nora's story ends is sort of indicative of how sometimes, regardless of how big your questions are, the biggest journey you have to take is this internal kind of self-help thing. Like mm. actually when she was telling her like Odyssey, you know, whether or not it was real, it made me think of of Landslide, of the Stevie Nicks song, uh-huh. which is that she like she like basically does like climbs the mountain and then turns around and does it again right like she goes and she finds them and then she's like now i have to go back and i thought that was you know logistically crazy and emotionally (laughs) made perfect sense like that that's what she would have to do so it's sort of funny because it it is a little bit more conventional in terms of its story beats and this goes back to the rom-com thing which like because when i spoke to damon after i saw the finale and one of the i asked him about Lori, and one of the things he said is like he was like well you know in a rom-com there's a best friend and i was like like, girl you have to go to that wedding (laughs) and i was like what (laughs) but also it's like yeah i guess i guess i guess sure so she plays the role of like you know, she's kind of both of their best friends, you know, she's yeah. she's uh, Kevin's best friend, too. And, and I just thought that was like, 
<laughs> like ridiculous. That's great. <laughs> there's, there's another thing I like about this story that she tells, which is, and it goes back to this idea of people comparing their trauma on the show and saying like they've been, everybody's been through some kind of horrible thing. Like I almost nobody, I don't believe anybody who went through that experience that begins the leftovers was unaffected by it. Like even if you, everybody lost somebody in their extended family or their community. So everybody's kind of starting at the same place. But then you get into the thing of like, well, I personally lost eight people, but this other person lost 18 or 20 or 40 or their entire town. Uh, so I have it better than they do. Mm -hmm. And this is actually something, while it's maybe not rational or particularly mentally healthy to do that, it's something that everybody does. And the story that she tells is here she is living in this reality, which is in many ways a kind of a horrible place, like a place that you kind of have to muddle through as best you can. And then she goes through the other side and uh, maybe, uh, you know, conditioned by Western concepts of heaven to think, ah, it's, you know, it's a lovely, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, tranquil lake and people are holding hands and building sandcastles or we're all on clouds playing harps or something. But it's basically, it's our world, except there are even more people died. And yeah. she, and like, I think a part of the reason why she comes back from this world, you know, it's like she goes there hoping that things are going to be better and it turns out they're even worse. And <laughs> right. it's like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to go back <laughs> to the other place. It's like, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Yeah, it is yeah. kind of, it's like, Ooh, it's Pottersville. Yeah. You know, I also, the, the detail I love the most in her monologue is that is she says about her husband's new wife is she's pretty twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just mm -hmm. thought that was great. You know, she's like kind of, that was like an extra like layer of, intimidation for her to not approach them a again assuming which i kind of do believe that she did go boris in your story you also talked about how justin thoreau struggled a bit with that monologue that he delivers to nora right before she delivers her monologue uh, where he tells her about how he has gone to australia every year to search for her which mm -hmm. by the way um our colleague jen cheney mentioned which i thought was a great point to make that it kind of reminded her of in Lost when Jack gets on a plane and goes, tries to just in the hopes that the plane will crash over and over and over mm -hmm. again, which feels like a very Lindelof move to just have like, it's like, why would Kevin get on a plane every two hmm. weeks for mm -hmm. years? It's like this kind of, uh, it just, it feels, it feels very Lindelofian, I guess, this idea of like well, searching is. for something. It is, but yeah. it also goes back to another touchdown, which we were talking about, I think, before we started recording, but we have discussed it with Lindelof in a different podcast. The uh, the affinity that the show has for the these kind of mystical works of Australian cinema in the 70s, and for 70s movies generally, but particularly Australian kind, which were filled with these kind of quasi-mystical um, kind of aboriginal events mm -hmm. that are unexplained, like Picnic and Hanging Rock and uh, uh, what's the other one? The Last Wave are both like they've got these what what a friend of mine called 70s head-scratcher endings. Like they're yeah. kind of the ultimate 70s head-scratcher endings. And they never explain what happened. And the director of both of those films, Peter Weir, would go on to make a number of other movies that would sort of have qualities. But he made them in the United States. But the big one is Fearless, which is about a guy who miraculously survives a plane crash that kills a lot of the people on board. And this guy feels like he should have died. And so he keeps subjecting himself to situations where he could die. Mm -hmm. Like he's walking on the edge of a skyscraper mm -hmm. or he runs a car directly into a wall. So there's a little bit of element of that, you know, so that lost thing, I wouldn't be surprised if that, if would, that, that rumbled up from his subconscious being a Peter Weir yeah. fan who loved Fearless. Mm. But so this, this monologue is so, I, I thought it, 
it's such a big one to have to sell. Yeah. You know, like I felt like even more than Nora's, like he has to like express his entire emotional well, journey he's he been on. I thought he did really well, I honestly. So I thought if anything, like the writing made it a little bit challenging to have to convey all of that in this one monologue where he yeah. kind of sold it better than most probably could. Well, so I think one of the thing one of the things that was interesting for me about it was how like what it tells you about what the actual shooting process is like, because you have this uh, perfect script and then you have to do something with it and fit it into nine days. And you're going out of town, out of Melbourne, you got to pay to put them up at some golf resort for, you know, and then it rains and what are you going to do? So they scheduled this shoot and they had Carrie Coon do it in the morning, her long speech, partly for makeup reasons so that they can have a shorter makeup. It's easier to go from dirty to clean, from clean to dirty and dirty to clean. And then they and then they had more sun in the afternoon and they could shoot that for Don when he was coming in. And he was just like, you know, had to sit there and listen to her speech for hours and hours. And then he had to go and they started losing the light. That's and he got frustrated. But I think that frustration reads reads on the on the screen. And, you know, in fact, it was it was one of his last scenes for the show. And I think it was an important moment for him and it's an important role for him. And he's saying goodbye to it. So, which by the way, I didn't personally witness because they didn't let me on set for that one. Oh, it was, yeah. yeah. It was too, it was too high too stakes. Much. Yeah. Yeah. That was a part of the fun of being in Melbourne was trying to like, uh, force them to let me on set as much as possible and <laughs> saying like, why exactly did I travel 7,000 miles? Right. But that's the fun of being a reporter. And sometimes <laughs> you win and sometimes you lose. There's something else I wanted to mention about this ending, which is I was thinking about how hard it is for science fiction or fantasy films or horror films or any kind of story to show something that is beyond the realm of human experience. It's really, really hard. And storytellers either seem to try to show the unshowable and fail, or they stop somewhat short of it, and they either go into abstraction or they don't show you the unshowable. And this is a great example of getting around the problem by, you know, when Kevin is going into his uh, traumatic fantasy slash other dimension, whatever you choose to call it, he's seeing something that is very tangible and it's basically bits and pieces of other movies, mostly genre movies kind of jumbled together in this very weird way. Um, but I ultimately prefer uh, the way that Nora gave us her vision, which I do feel is a different reality than the one Kevin visited um, because you don't see it. You don't see it. And I think that if, while she was talking, if they cut to images of her walking around, you know, some other part of Australia or, I don't know, maybe they go to Iowa or Ottawa or somewhere to shoot it, you know, whatever it is, I think it would have diminished the power of it. And um, uh, a lot of a lot of storytellers make that mistake. And I think one of the examples I think of is uh, 2001, the ending of 2001, he goes from the monolith and then basically it becomes this kaleidoscopic sound and light show and you just see a bunch of pulsing, strobing patterns and things and you don't know how what you're supposed to make of it exactly. And then he ends in a white room and it sort of seems recognizable and yet alien. And then in the end, there's a shot of the star child and you can kind of deduce what happened, but you're, you're never going to really get the answer to that. Um, and at the end of Close Encounters, he goes into the spaceship and you don't see the inside of the spaceship and you certainly don't go to the world where those aliens are from. And that's a that's a smart move. 
because whatever they showed us, it would be disappointing. And in fact, Spielberg did the special edition of Close Encounters, and he shot a sequence where Richard Dreyfuss goes inside the spaceship. And I remember as a kid, I went back to see it. It was three years after it came out. And when he goes inside the spaceship, it was like, huh, that looks, that looks kind of like the Hyatt Regency Hotel in downtown <laughs> Dallas, except with aliens looking out of the windows. Well, and Spielberg himself realized he'd made a mistake. And that was the only version of that movie that that shot is in. He's like, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have gone inside the spaceship. Well, they didn't go inside the spaceship here. And I think it was a, a smart play. I mm. do think that if they had had 10 episodes, I think it, it, for me it was an issue of time. And you couldn't you couldn't do that in this tiny amount of space mm. where we've seen Kevin go to his alternate world, but we still don't necessarily have to believe that it happened. And I thought they did a really good job of, of showing that world. And if she, they had had 10 episodes and they did an episode nine where she's in this other world, I would have been like super on board for seeing that, honestly. Mm. I, I I think it would have been cool. I, I it would have been different, but I wonder if they ever. It might have been, but it also might have been like the episode of ER where what's a, Noah Wiley goes to Africa with Doctors Without Borders. You know, it's <laughs> like that's like great. You spent a lot of money on that, but is that something that we really needed to see? Right. Does it help? Does it really help? Well, because because well, I, I I do think that you're supposed to want to see it, right? right because right. of the way that she tells it, and it's a very compelling story what she's saying. But I think also if they had showed us it, we would have been able to interpret it in other ways than what she presents to us. Mm. And I think that part of the power of it is you have to take it at her face. I mean, I said this when I right. when I interviewed Damon. I'm sorry, I keep going back to this. But when I talked to him, you know, I had just watched the finale and I was like super like emotional about it. And I said, like, what really struck me is that somehow, I mean, I've seen the show do so much. And yet somehow the fact that Kevin like takes her hand and says, I believe you was yes. like somehow the most emotional like punch. Like it felt like this whole show has been talking about belief and loss and grief and how we relate to each other. And for him to so simply after so long be able to say that he believes her even regardless, you know, he has he really doesn't know, you well, know, I do guess I was wondering why she thought he wouldn't believe her, mm. you know, like him believing her was not the the thing that I thought would be a stretch, mm -hmm. you know, like he she has she has been through so much. Who else would who else would be better able to believe her than Kevin? He's saying karaoke in purgatory. Yeah. He's, you know, he has a pretty th high I, threshold for what's plausible. Exactly. And he even says it. Why wouldn't I believe you? You know, mm -hmm. and I, I do, And again, I do think that it was a beautiful ending and I'm glad they didn't show it to us and that it worked perfectly for this finale. I guess I just could imagine an alternate version mm -hmm. where they had more episodes and they may have played with it and it could have been interesting in a different way. Mm -hmm. well, you know, all of that would make much more sense if she's lying. But I'll just put it out there. <laughs> right, uh, right. But what do you guys what think? What would make more sense if she's lying? That that she says, well, I didn't think you'd believe me. Uh -huh. And that they don't that show it. Like right. That's true. That's very yeah. true. Yeah, but on the yeah. other hand, it's like a, to mention another movie that attempts a 2001 ending and I think ultimately fails is uh, Contact. Wow. Contact. Yeah, That's I mean, so freaking rude, man. I mean, well, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I love the, I love Contact. I love everything up to the point where she goes to the beach and the orb comes down and it's her dad. Mm. I much would have preferred to have her tell that story and not see it. Mm. It's not the content of it that bugs me. It's, it's the visualization of it, which I think makes it very 
not as cool and interesting and magical to right. to see it because it's a, it's like you know South Park made fun of it you know I think Mr. <laughs> Garrison complains about it and she finally meets the aliens it's her damn father you know and I mean like they and they got around that and but in in um, contact she goes into this centrifuge type thing which sort of like the thing at the end of Lost and she jets out on this thing it looks like the rock and roller coaster at you know di- at the MGM theme park in Disney World. <laughs> And she and she or actually Space Mountain and she and she comes out on the other side and she's on the beach with her dad and everything. But when she comes back, there's an 18 minute gap on the tape yeah. or, or whatever. That's Nixon's gap. It's probably a different length. <laughs> I think it's I think it's like 36 hours or something or something like it? that. It's, whatever yeah. it is, there's a piece of the story that is missing and no one knows what happens. She's like, well, that's when it happened. It's like, well, we have no proof. We can't believe you. Right. So but... that's what I felt like was her was Kevin saying. I, there's no proof for their story. And I agree with you that the emotional impact of contact is them realizing that the tape has that gap on it and they yes. won't tell her. Like, I, I agree with you. Yes, like, in yeah, some ways, yeah, it's yeah. the absence that is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, but but I think Gazelle has a point, which is that international assassin and the most powerful man in the world go, goes to this place and delivers two of the most fantastic episodes of The mm-hmm. Leftovers. Right. Um, you could, I mean, and I feel like my, like, I think there are good arguments for it because I think one of the things I like so much about that space is that it's, it's the realm of the subconscious or the unconscious where like it has a dream logic. So Mm -hmm. anything can really happen. And the problem with showing Nora's whatever this journey is, is if you make it literal, then you believe her. And if you make it a dream space, then it undermines the truth of her story. Like you, you just, you open yourself up to all of these problems. Right. Not to disagree with you, no, but no, yeah. no, that's right. totally. F- I I totally see what you're saying. I guess I I think that the show pulled it off with the international assassin episodes in a way where you could either believe it or not, right? And I think that oh, that's interesting because poss- I totally believed it. I I believe it too, but that's how I watch the show mm-hmm. because I kind of just like to let myself fall into that space. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that those are meant to be like literally interpreted either as things that definitely I believe that happened. that happened to Kevin in the sense of. Anything, there's a range, there's, it runs the game. When I say I believe Kevin, I mean, there's a lot, there's a wide bandwidth of what I mean by I believe Kevin. Mm. It's everything from I believe that Kevin entered an alternate reality or went to heaven or purgatory and all this crazy stuff happened to him. And that the only, the only purgatorial alternate reality is this uh, James Bond international assassin, you know, Tom Clancy one, Mm -hmm. all the way to. Kevin had a traumatic experience and this was what he fantasized when he was on the edge of death. Right. You know, so but I believe that that happened to Kevin, that thing that we saw happen to him, even if it's just a mental, emotional event. Totally. Yes. And I think they could. The show is good enough that it could have pulled it off for Nora in a way that still leaves you feeling ambiguous about the whole experience. Mm-hmm. You'd have we to, just will never know. Would you have done it in flashes or the whole thing or? Uh, I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I can't. I can't presume to know how I would have gone about it. The way that you expected it in this episode, it would have had to have been flashes. But I think that there could have been an episode eight where you see her go into the machine and she comes out and she's in the other space and it's a whole episode. Uh, See, but here's another thing that just just now occurred to me, which is that Kevin... Because the only time we've seen a version of the other side, whatever that means, is is from Kevin's perspective. Mm-hmm. We believed Kevin because that was the only time that we saw it. But now that someone else has had that experience and they've come back and they've told it to Kevin and it sounds very different from the kinds of experiences that Kevin had, that retroactively casts doubt on Kevin for me. 
that retroactively that made me that was the first time like having this conversation of did Nora really go somewhere mm-hmm. that makes me think well if she didn't really go somewhere maybe Kevin didn't either I mean this is really inter- this is really interesting to me because I think that I don't doubt Kevin because I don't need to I don't need to think that Kevin was the president in order to think that Kevin had an experience that changed him mm-hmm. and I think that's sim- that's the same way I feel about Nora too and this goes back to believing both of them that to some degree the only thing you can do in this world is to say to someone I don't understand your experience but I believe you I believe your emotional journey mm-hmm. um so so it's interesting that you came away from it feeling doubt towards both of them cuz I feel like I felt I, at the end of it, I was like, of course, the p- most powerful man in the world had his journey and the bravest girl in the world had her journey. And they only are able to really meet each other in our world when they've had them separately. Well, I would just clarify that I'm not saying I disbelieve that something Im- incredibly important happened to both of them. I'm saying like <laughs> the objective reality of that other world has been cast into doubt by the differences in tone. Yeah. And the differences in like the kind of world they're describing. Matt, I can't believe you'd be so mean to Kevin. <laughs> I wouldn't. I love Kevin. <laughs> well, I believe I believe that something happened to Kevin that was very deep and profound. But like, can you go over there and measure the drapes in the Oval Office? Uh, well, can we talk about Kevin's how we leave Kevin? And I'd love to get your take on this, Boris, just how they you know, we've gone through all this crazy shit with Kevin and his his shamanism. And we don't really like the the show like we're talking about doesn't really answer you know whether this happened or not but i was curious if the heart condition was meant to be mm. something that is makes you think that this had anything to do with the experiences that he's been having um i i think they were playing around with that idea uh they were playing around with having the heart condition be something that would allow him to to drown <laughs> for a, lo- a little while but i think that that's not meant to be in its finished form taken mm-hmm. literally. But obviously there's a concordance and it allows him to say that he's not mortal. Uh, he's not immortal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, can you, you want to see my scar is very much callback to seven because, yeah. you know, it just has this resonance of vulnerability and he's, you know, it almost feels like the scar is something that he took back from that world as a result of basically taking his own heart out. Right. Um, to and the- that. The Beach Boys. The well, and also that's what he's doing in that scene is he's, right. he's handing his heart to Nora. Right. right. And like the key to the key to like his his experience of this 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 immortality, the spiritual state, he like has to dig it out of himself in order to. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like that episode has given me so much to to <laughs> process and think about because. Maybe I think about like apocalypse a lot these days, but I was who doesn't. <laughs> but I was really, you know, again, so moved by the two Kevins grappling with each other and thinking about what they might represent to each other, and and the fact that Kevin, you know, kills his counterpart and destroys the world that is beyond. You know, I mean, you sort of get the sense that when he comes, that's it. That's the last time he is going to drown himself to go somewhere else, right? And I thought there was something really like he he eliminates the possibility of being the 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 Messiah in he, some ways. He makes a choice in a way, right? Yeah. He chooses he chooses yeah. the mortal world, right? But he also chooses he also chooses the symbolic death, the emotional death that comes with not accepting love that's offered to you. Ooh, that's what I think. That's what I think. Like on a dream interpretation level, is happening in in episode seven. Can you, in- which rhymes with Kevin? <laughs> Woo. Can you like make make that sentence into more sentences? Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> well, what I mean is, you know, 
There's a saying that it's an oversimplification, but the idea that everything and everyone in a dream is you. Mm. And I think, you know, in that in that seventh episode, but also in International Assassin, but particularly in the seventh episode of season three, all of the different people that he meets who are kind of they were gone from the narrative and now they've returned to him. I don't think they're really those people. I think they're these dream sort of manifestations of of what they what they mean to Kevin or what some aspect of them means to Kevin. And I think when Kevin encounters his doppelganger, you know, it's the most powerful man in the world versus the person who is uh, going to stop him from destroying everything. Mm. And uh, the most powerful man in the world basically rips rips the key out of his heart and uses it to blow everything up. And I think, like, you know, there's a lot of doppelgangers on this show and a lot of doppelgangers in popular culture generally, but... I think what's happening there is it's like if this were a dream and if I were analyzing it, if it were somebody else's dream, I would say, well, those are two competing scenarios for how you're going to spend the rest of your life and how you're going to deal with this trauma that you've suffered. Either you're going to accept love or you aren't, mm. you know, and uh, and I think, you know, in my narrative of this, Kevin comes away from that experience again, whether he goes through some kind of portal to another world or if he's having a traumatic dream, he comes out of that experience and he goes in search of Nora. Mm. Yeah, I will say that. um the one exception to this notion of everybody being a projection of him that I think is important in the same way that Nora, the power of Carrie Coon's performance sort of lifts the plausibility of that story. I think the Patty Levin mm. character, the relationship that they have that goes back. And I think it has something to do with because I've heard that Justin Thoreau and, and Dowd had had a very sort of close working relationship on the set too. the journey that she made him take to uh, save her. And the favor that she returned, that to me feels like something in which she's like actually genuinely an agent. And if like if there's anything on the show that makes me lean toward, you know, something weird having actually happened, I think mm-hmm. it'd be that. Well, there's that. Mm-hmm. And there's also the God guy on the boat like, popping up like the hitchhiker in that Twilight Zone yeah. episode. You know? It's just a pickup line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that I mean, and it's funny that Twin Peaks is back in our lives right now because to me, asking whether or not what's happening to Kevin in the hotel or in uh, in in that world is real is like asking if the Black Lodge is real or mm-hmm. like is it that is that really happening? Are the people who are there really themselves? And I think that it's like both, right? It's like mm-hmm. they are and they aren't, and that's fun. I think I'm on episode yeah. three. I have no idea what's going on, <laughs> but I will say that Damon told me, and I was a huge. I was the vice president of the Twin Peaks fan club in my high school. Oh my! Only the wow. vice president. The, the vice president out of three members, so <laughs> pretty uh. middling. But you know, Damon, I don't even know how we got on the topic, but we were on set, and he said, you know, without Twin Peaks, we wouldn't be here. Mm. Of course, mm. yeah. Thank you, Boris and Thank Sonia, you. for being with us here today. Thanks for Thank having me. You. Thank you. It's great to be here. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazella Mommy. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. I'm Sonia Soraya, Variety's TV critic. You can also find me on Twitter at, at Sonia Soraya. I'm Boris Kochka, writer for New York Magazine and Vulture. You can find me on Twitter at Boris K. Thanks for listening. 